Our goal at SwampWorks is to expand civilization into the solar system for the benefit of humanity. And this is a grand challenge that the next generation really embraces. So if you want to build a small outpost, which turns into a village, which turns into a town and eventually a city on the moon or Mars, you have to use local resources. The future of space is going to be manufacturing in space, and we will manufacture many useful things, but they won't necessarily come back to Earth. Most of them will be used in space. You're listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast featuring interviews and stories, tapping into project experiences in order to unravel lessons learned, identify best practices, and discover novel ideas. I'm Dina Nunley. SwampWorks is an innovation environment at NASA's Kennedy Space Center where new technologies are developed for space exploration. Rob Mueller is a senior technologist and co-founder of the NASA SwampWorks Innovation Labs and joins us now. Rob, thank you for talking with us. Pleasure talking to you. How does SwampWorks set the stage for technology breakthroughs? Well, the rules are a little bit different at SwampWorks. We really went back to our roots at NASA and we do a lot of hands-on development. It's uh, basically a way we used to work where you do a lot of rapid prototyping. You learn very quickly from your mistakes and sometimes we say we fail fast forward. So that means we're not afraid to make a mistake and learn very quickly from our mistakes as long as they're safe and we move forward in a much quicker way than you would with traditional technology development. And this is the way they used to do things in Apollo when we had a lot of missions and a, a, a lot of spectacular failures, but also very rapid progress. How do you think the SwampWorks approach is contributing to our next adventure in space exploration? We have a big challenge given to us uh, by the president and vice president to put a man and woman on the moon by 2024. And this is going to take an extreme focus and uh, a way of working which is extremely efficient. And we can't do this in the normal way. We have to really try to change the way we do business. And uh, one of the ways of doing this is with rapid development in a lean development environment. And that's what SwampWorks specializes in, is just uh, going straight to the prototyping phase. And then we use the technology readiness level scale, which is a typical way you develop technologies at NASA. So at one, there's a new idea. That's a brand new formulation of an idea. At nine, it means the idea has actually been built and has been flown in space on a routine basis. So in our lab, we typically work between one and six, TRL one and six. And the way you do that is through a, a rapid cycle of design, test, build, and then you do it again, design, test, build, and usually by about the third or fourth iteration, you have a good product. What do you think the next crew headed to the moon and beyond might be taking with them that originated from scientific discovery and technology development at SwampWorks? We have some really interesting technologies. And one of the exciting new things we're working on is a dust shield. So uh, many people uh, remember the Apollo missions and we learned a lot on the Apollo missions about dust. And in fact, the Apollo astronauts said that dust was going to be the biggest operational problem we'll have when we go back to the moon. 
And in fact, this dust is is a crushed rock. It's very fine. It's like talcum powder, but it's uh, also very sharp. Imagine talcum powder that's formed of crushed glass. And that's kind of what it is. It's crushed rock at a very small particle size. And because there's no humidity on the moon, it's a vacuum, there's also a high electrostatic charges that accumulate on these little particles. So they stick to everything. And uh, that's a big challenge. So we've developed a electrodynamic dust shield. If, imagine a camera with a lens that is dusty. And if you turn the switch on this special dust shield that we've developed, the dust is repelled by electrodynamic forces. So that's one of the things I expect that the astronauts will be using is dust shields and, and other technologies that will help you live and work on the surface of the moon. How would you gauge the progress right now of that technology and the work that you're doing? Well, most of our technology is uh, at about the TRL 4 or 5 level. And then when we get to 6, that's when we test it in a relevant environment. So that requires a little bit more budget where you need a vacuum chamber, a thermal vacuum chamber. And, and so most of our technology is about 4 or 5. At that point, typically in technology development, you hit what's known as the valley of death. That's when a technology has gone as far as it can in the lab. It's ready to go out into the field, into a relevant environment, but it just hasn't got the funding to go do that. And, and that's typical of any technology development program. And, and that's the challenge, is to make it through the valley of death. And these technologies that you're working on now for missions to the moon, especially, where are they on the TRL scale? Uh, we work mostly on technologies to do with resource utilization. Uh, sometimes we call that living off the land in space. And what that means is that you don't bring it with you. You, you make it in space. And in fact, there's a lot of energy in space from the sun, and there are many resources in the regolith. So if we can mine the regolith, we actually dig it up with robots, and then we put it into a processor, and we extract useful things out of the regolith, like oxygen and hydrogen, aluminum, titanium, magnesium, all these very useful things. We can extract them out of the regolith. Those are the kind of technologies we are developing, and most of those are proven here on Earth, but they've never actually flown in space. So that puts them at about TRL 5 or 6. That's where most of the technologies are right now. When you look at those technologies, like with the regolith and the technologies you're working, do you think that Swamp Works is making a big contribution toward our future missions? Yeah, absolutely, because it's just not sustainable. We can go into space and we can plant a flag and we can take pictures of the footprints and everybody celebrates that. But if you're not going back because you haven't done it in a sustainable way, then really that's shortchanging our future. So the only way we're going to really make a difference and expand our economy into space so that everybody can thrive and prosper, really the only way you can do it is by being self-reliant in space using local resources. It's just too expensive to lift everything out of Earth's gravity well most of the energy you need to go into space is just getting out of Earth's gravity well. Once you're in space, then the cost of transportation is relatively cheap because you're outside of that gravity well. So the, the key to sustainable space exploration is to use local resources. And, and that's what we're doing in our lab. And I think that's going to make a big difference in the future. When you are looking forward to the missions and trying to be sustainable, 
What are some of the things that come to your mind that you're like, oh, wow, I wish we could fill in the blank? What are those things? I wish we could find water. The, the water is there. The big difference between 20 years ago and today is that there's more and more evidence that there is actually a lot of water in our solar system. Now, most of the water is beyond the frost belt. The frost line is where the asteroid belt is. Beyond that, there are many volatiles. In fact, comets are volatiles that are coming in from the outer solar system into the inner solar system. That tail behind the comet, those are the volatiles that are subliming. You see them streaking away behind the comet. So that's that's uh, evidence of some volatiles. And a lot of times these volatiles, these are gases, and sometimes th those volatiles are in the form of water, water ice. And the water ice uh, vaporizes. But water is the key to life. And if we go into the solar system, we need water to survive. We need water for consumption, human consumption, life support. We need to grow plants. It's also very good for radiation shielding. And if you electrolyze the water, you turn it into hydrogen and oxygen. And that's the best chemical rocket propellant that you can find. It has a very high specific impulse. In fact, that's what the space shuttle used. So if we find water in space... That's going to be the, the big breakthrough because it will let us use the water for transportation purposes and also just to survive. What are you working on at the moment that you think has high likelihood of being a game changer? One of the best technologies we have in our lab is 3D printing with regolith concrete. And so you can imagine that it's not very uh, practical to launch concrete or steel I-beams into space. And that's typically how we do construction on Earth with concrete and steel. But that's just not going to work in space. That's uh, too much mass, too much volume. And so if you want to build a small outpost, which turns into a village, which turns into a town and eventually a city on the moon or Mars, you have to use local resources. So what we've done is we've invented a new type of concrete. And the concrete uses the regolith. The regolith is the crushed rock on the surface of the moon and Mars. It's been formed by meteorites and, and comets and other high-energy impact events over four and a half billion years. So you have a lot of crushed rock on the surface of the moon. And on Earth, we call that crushed rock aggregate. And aggregate is one of the main components of concrete. So if we take the aggregate and mix it with a binder, we now have a lunar or Martian concrete. And we can 3D print with that new material by using advanced robotics and autonomous software. If we take all those three technologies, combine them together, we have a new way of automated additive construction. And what's really exciting about it is this technology that we can use in space, you can also use it on Earth. And that, that is really the ultimate technology when it has a benefit in space and on Earth. I think that's going to be a big game changer when we can 3D print a house in a very short period of time for about 10% of the cost of what your house would cost today. That sounds amazing. How optimistic are you that this is all going to come to pass? And what, what do you envision building in space? Well, the evidence is out there that technology is accelerating. The rate of change is getting faster and faster. You just have to think about computers and Moore's Law, where the processing speed of a computer chip is, is doubling over a period of about one and a half to two years. So 
this is happening. It's exponential growth. And in fact, it's hard to keep up with it because it's happening so quickly. But when you take all these technologies and, and the way they're accelerating, it just gives you endless new possibilities. So uh, we have all the materials. We have all the energy in space. We're starting to get the technologies that are necessary. So the only thing that's missing is the human imagination to put all these pu puzzle pieces together and make something useful. So the key to all of this is when you're in space is don't bring it from Earth. Make it there. The future of space is going to be manufacturing in space, and we will manufacture many useful things, but they won't necessarily come back to Earth. Most of them will be used in space, and then we might do other things which will benefit the Earth, uh, which we can't even imagine yet. But a few, few things that uh, people have talked about is beaming energy back to Earth, or uh, there is a fiber optic that you can only make in zero gravity, that is much more pure than, than the fiber optic you can find on Earth, which has much higher transmission rates for data. So there are potentially useful products that can be used on Earth as well. But most of the products in space will be made for use in space, and then we'll derive value from that for Earth by using them in space. Rob, you've been doing this for a while. What stands out to you as the biggest SwampWorks achievements so far? Well, so far, I'm, I'm really proud that we exist at all. <laughs> we've built a great team. We have a great facility. and We've developed a new way of working, which isn't uh, really that new. We've been doing it for many years in, in other industries and previously in the Apollo days. But we've reintroduced that to a new generation of workers. So I'm really proud of the fact that we have a good team. Now, when you have a good team, uh, we, we can do anything, anything that NASA asks us to do, uh, given enough uh, imagination and resources, we could probably get it done. And that's a very valuable mindset to be in. And if you're in that mindset, that, that's the key to success. Well, what I'm proud of is that we've managed to build robots that can mine on the moon. We're building 3D printers that can 3D print with concrete. We're working on swarming robot technology, so uh, and, and a variety of other uh, investigations. We're looking at how rocket plumes interact with the surface. So when you land, there's uh, going to be a big jet of uh, rocket exhaust plume hitting the surface. And that's going to eject particles at two to three thousand meters per second, and that's that's four or five times faster than a speeding bullet. So these are all things that are, have very practical applications when you do space exploration. So these technologies will be extremely necessary when we go and, and live in space. And, and we're just getting started. So um, the, the main thing that I'm proud of is that we've built this team and we have the right mindset to tackle these audacious tasks. And, and that in itself, I think, is, is the highest value. From a team perspective, what makes it possible for SwampWorks to make such amazing technology advancements? Well, a lot of it is that you have to eliminate fear. Uh, many things in life are, are driven by a fear of failure. And if you can get past that fear and you can create a safe environment where uh, everything is uh, achievable because you're not afraid of failure, uh, then you, you might not know the answer right away when you embark on this journey of discovery. 
but eventually you just iterate your way into it and so that's the way you can be successful and and it's it's more of a a way of working than than an actual body of knowledge you you can always get the knowledge by bringing the right team members in and uh, using the right resources but i think the way of working is very important is to have this mindset that uh, uh, we can do it we just have to uh, make some mistakes along the way until we figure it out. And do you have a multidisciplinary team? Absolutely. ISRU is called In-Situ Resource Utilization. It's an intersection of many technologies. It's actually quite humbling to work on ISRU because you'll never know everything. You have to rely on your teammates. We have chemical engineers. We have uh, physicists. We have mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, software programmers. Uh, we have um, even ergonomic specialists on, on how robots interact with, with the crew. Uh, we have management teams, project management. So it's, it's multidisciplinary and everybody's important. And you just need, need all these different skills interacting with each other because the main thing in this uh, space resource utilization is it's very similar to a, a mining operation on Earth. First, you have to find the resource. That means prospecting. Then you have to acquire the resource. That means you have to mine it. Then you have to process the resource. So that's some kind of chemical engineering. Then you have to transfer the resource into a tank, for example, for a cryogenic propellant. And then you have to store it and condition it and load it onto the rocket. And then you have to operate that rocket. And so... There are many disciplines interacting. It really requires teamwork. Are there lessons learned or experiences you've had with SwampWorks that might be helpful to NASA's technical workforce? Well, there are a lot of experiences that we've had. And I think the fact that you have a good team with a good attitude is very important. But then you also have to have the skills. So technical competence is very important, and that means it's a lifelong learning process. We have a young team. Uh, The age is between 25 and 35, but we also have older team members with experience to guide the younger team members. But uh, even the older team members, because we're on the frontier, we're constantly learning. There is no right answer on the frontier. So when somebody asks you, where is the water on the moon, there is no answer. We, we haven't really discovered the answer to that question yet. And so there's a lot of room for curiosity, and uh, you constantly have to recalibrate your thinking because what you thought was correct one day, turns out we have some new information now, and it's uh, completely changed the way we think about uh, where the resources are. So... In, in this business, uh, when you're on the frontier, you have to be extremely flexible. And maybe that's, that's what we've learned. We've learned how to be flexible and uh, uh, react very quickly to change. And uh, if you're on the frontier and you want to survive, that's a, a very important uh, characteristic to have. In terms of the way you do business, are there elements of the SwampWorks approach that could be applied effectively in other NASA programs and projects? Yeah, I, I think there are many lessons to be learned on, on from an innovation environment that can be applied to a big organization. But the, the trouble is, is um, scale. Uh, 
when you scale an organization up, it becomes difficult. Communication becomes difficult and interaction becomes difficult. And so there have been many studies done on this, but the, the way you can apply these lessons from an innovation environment to a large organization is you have to split up into smaller units. So you take a large organization and you split it into, into smaller work units, and then you have those small teams working independently, but then interacting with each other on a regular basis. But really size is, is a big driver of inefficiencies. And so to be lean and, and effective and efficient, you have to reduce size, but a large organization is difficult to uh, control. So the key to making that work is to split the large organization up into smaller work units and then have good interfaces. And, that, and that's just typical of any systems engineering problem. But if you apply that to a large organization, I think that is one of the lessons learned from, from our experience. Do you think that's something that NASA is doing well, especially as we prepare for these next bold missions? Well, NASA has to evolve with the mission. And NASA's done very well with the mission it has had in the past, but the mission is changing. And the world is changing. And technology is changing. And before, uh, the government in the 1950s and 60s we talked about spin out. The government provided the funds. These uh, organizations developed the technology, and then we spun that out to private industry and commercialize it. But in fact, today, it's much more complex. We have spin out and we have spin in, and it's a constant interaction between spinning out and spinning in. But there's also much more spin in than there was in the past because industry is working so effectively and you just have to look at the rate of change of, of computer processing and the, the, the new chipsets that are coming out and, and other technologies, um, optics, lasers, all kinds of things, communications, even things like harmonic drives for robotics, uh, it's all changing. So instead of the government developing it all, we can take advantage of things that are happening in private industry and we call that spin in. So there's a constant interaction and NASA has to change the way it's working because the world is changing. You have to adapt to your environment. And, and that's a challenge for a government agency because the, the, a government agency is driven by bureaucratic processes. And that is NASA's biggest challenge is how to operate in a way which is more efficient and can do more with less resources. How does SwampWorks collaborate with other NASA centers, industry, and academia to find solutions to challenges of traveling longer and farther from our home planet? Well, that's a great question because we're a small team. We only have 25 to 50 people uh, at any given time in, in the SwampWorks labs. There's six labs, but we have a footprint of thousands. And the way we do that is by partnering. In fact, in our lab, we have a banner hanging on the wall for each successful partnership that we've had. We put up a banner celebrating that partnership. And we couldn't do it with our partners. We have uh, private industry partners. We have a lot of university partners. And we have other uh, government agency partners as well. We work with the U.S. Army. 
Uh, we worked with Oak Ridge National Labs. We worked with many universities. We have the Small Business Innovative Research Program, SBIR, which uh, specializes in giving seed money to small businesses so that they can develop new technologies and launch their businesses. So uh, really, we have a high degree of leveraging, and the way we leverage is by awarding contracts, government contracts, to universities and private industry. And and that's the key, is we have 50 people doing the work of 5,000 because we do this very effective partnering. And the partnering and the collaboration, that goes across other NASA centers as well? Absolutely. Every center specializes in something different. Uh, we try to avoid duplication. So we, we have uh, just a specialization uh, centers of excellence where different uh, uh, field centers, there's nine field centers at NASA and NASA headquarters, and each center has a different expertise domain. And so we, we call up the centers that have the expertise and we partner with them. Uh, we meet each other regularly at, at uh, conferences and, and other workshops. So there is a community that crosses all the centers. Rob, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. We really do appreciate you joining us. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It's been great talking to you. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about? Well, our goal at SwampWorks is to expand civilization into the solar system for the benefit of humanity. And this is a grand challenge that the next generation really embraces. In fact, I, I saw the other day that NASA was in the top five of uh, entities that, that uh, graduating seniors would like to work for. So this is... Uh, also about inspiring the next generations. When you do great things, you attract great minds. And that's what we'd like to do is, is attract uh, the best uh, thinkers and, and creative individuals that we could find to go solve this grand challenge of expanding civilization into the solar system. And I, I think we're doing that and we, we, we are welcoming everybody that's willing to work on this and, and uh, inspiring the next generation. You'll find links to topics mentioned on the show, along with Rob's bio and a transcript at apple.nasa.gov slash podcast. If you have suggestions for interview topics, please let us know on Twitter at NASA Apple and use the hashtag small steps, giant leaps. Thanks for listening.